That's a big deal because what that means is we're going to go from a shortage to an eventual glut. And the glut should hit right when we're starting to really boom upward, when cheap chips will allow a lot of innovation for new stuff. And that's a technical term. I'm sorry, I should give the definition of stuff more regularly, but it is really, really complicated. I'm sorry that I can't give you the full definition of stuff. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, question mark. Uh, this is the Personal Wealth Coach. We are here to hopefully inform you, possibly with a lot of straining involved, entertain you and talk about economics at the same time. I know inform, entertain, and talk about economics. It sounds like we've got three different subjects for the radio program, but uh, hopefully it will all be one subject. Don't ask us about sports. Seriously. Uh, neither of us, well, maybe, I haven't checked with you recently. Do you know who won the Super Bowl last year? No. Did somebody, did we play Super Bowl last year? We are being serious here, folks. As odd as it sounds, Neither one of us knows who won the Super Bowl last year. That is not our sport, uh, nor is tennis, nor is basketball. Organized sports in general, not for us. But we do understand the economy. Well, sort let's of. Talk, let's talk about GDP a little bit more. You know, we came out with the annualized rate of 6.4%. That's the official, and by the way, the, it's the official first estimate. They'll make three more estimates before they're done. But those so estimates. really won't. Yeah, they'll, they'll, even the third estimate or the fourth estimate, which they'll do in two years, which will be the final estimate, we still don't know. It's still an estimate, guys. This is one of the things a lot of people don't understand, that it's really, really, really hard to measure things that big. You know, we talk about the fact that China is growing a lot faster than we are historically. It has grown much faster than, than the United States has, but the... The consensus among economists right now is that the U.S. GDP will probably grow about 6.4% in 2021. That's pretty close to what we're expecting the Chinese economy to run at. And that's the point. The Chinese, it, there's a couple of things going on in China. First off, at least for one year, it looks like we're catching up with China as far as growth rate is concerned. But it's important to start to understand we're starting way ahead of China when it comes to size. So 6.4% growth in the United States is a lot more dollars or yuan or whatever you use for the renminbi than China's is. So we're actually pulling away from China this year. Now, of course, everybody everybody's immediate reaction when I say that to them probably would be, well, yeah, but it's temporary. The Chinese got such a big country and they've got such a big population and they're growing so fast. That may be true, but there's a couple of interesting things that came out. Uh, the Economist came out with a very interesting article. China's population appears to be shrinking. They yep. normally, by this time, have come out with their official census data that they do every few years, and they're not coming out with it. And a lot of anecdotal information that's coming out of China indicates that they have already peaked in their population. China's population appears to be shrinking, where the United States population is still growing at about 1.4% a year. That's bad for China because it means people are the average age of people in the country are getting older and the workforce is actually shrinking in China right now. Now, immediately you're starting out with a huge workforce to begin with. The other thing is 
China's recovery from the COVID epidemic, pandemic, is showing a lot of signs it's slowing down. It immediately it surged up faster than anybody else, but they're having trouble because the rest of the world isn't buying stuff from them as fast as they'd like to sell it. So they're, they're for instance, they're, uh, they're purchasing managers into indices around 51 to 54%, where ours are up in the 60s. In other words, we're, our economy is growing much faster than theirs internally, and their economy seems to be barely growing at this point. The, there's some other factors here, and I think this is, if you don't understand this, then you really don't understand China. And we talked about this right before the radio program got started. And we have a, a, a question out there, John, we will get to it in just a minute. I think this is more meat that you'll enjoy eating. Um, 5G. Well, number one, there's a lot of conspiracies out there about 5G. Well, I'm not going to get into those. It's a, it's a radio signal uh, bandwidth that allows transmission of data at high speeds. Okay. There's a lot of people that think, hey, I don't want to get 5G on my phone because they'll be able to control my brain. Well, I'm sorry to inform you this, but it doesn't matter if you have it on your phone. It's already in the airwaves. So if they're going to control your brain, it's already being done. Just just letting you know. There's a problem with that. If you're looking at advertisements on Amazon or anywhere else, they're already controlling your brain anyway. Yes, they are. Just doing it through marketing. Um, so the, the concept here of 5G, who was the first company to develop 5G? There was this massive race amongst all of the developed countries of the world, all of the best communication companies trying to get to 5G, to get to the point where the bandwidth explosion takes place there. There was a whole new realm of uh, frequencies available from the FCC. Uh, it was concentrated in the area that used to be baby monitors. So that's another thing is that if you're afraid of 5G, it was already there if you had a baby monitor. Okay, doesn't matter. It's, it's a little silly to keep coming back to the conspiracy. It's just something I, I find it interesting. Understanding radio frequencies is important here. Why was it that Huawei, out of all the companies that were racing to get this technology, Huawei had it first? Huawei is a Chinese company, and they, are, they do make smartphones. They have their own operating system, their smartphones look a lot like everybody else's smartphones. They have the same parts in them as a lot of other people's smartphones, even though that violates lots of intellectual property law. The same way that they develop their phones, they develop their 5G technology. They manufacture for all of those leading enterprises out there that are racing to get 5G. Only they get the benefit of looking at each of their manufacturing processes and taking the parts that work from each of these companies and combining them into one. Well, this was something that first the Obama administration and then the Trump administration took exception to. Uh, Obama originally sanctioned them, and then Trump really sanctioned them, enough so that the COO of Huawei was arrested in Canada due to corporate espionage. They were actively stealing technology from these leading technology providers and combining it to make something that none of the others could do on their own. None of, now, all of these things were things that the others could share with each other if they wanted to, but this is the definition of the race. Each of them was trying to get to 5G on their own, and then they would be the ones with the technology. Well, Huawei cheated. They cut the line. They said, I'm going to take all your technology and combine it and say it's mine. 
That's not good. So Huawei was sanctioned horribly. But in that process, we got 5G. What? How did that happen? None of those individual companies have developed their own method to get to 5G yet. So how do we have 5G because Huawei messed up and broke the rules? The answer is that usually in patent law, in trademark law, if you're using somebody else's patent, you have to pay them royalties on it. It's called royalties. Well, the court case against Huawei declared that Huawei, if we wanted them to be able to pay at all, they needed to stay in business. They needed to pay penalties to each of the company's patents of different companies that they were utilizing to make their 5G if they were going to use it anywhere in the world. So the penalty rule framework was in place to use those patents the same as royalty. In, in, in essence, what it did is it took those patents, which were only usable by the company that owned them, and granted a license to use them if you paid the penalty, which you could just replace that word with royalty. So it's an involuntary use of somebody else's patent, but they're still getting paid for it. That's how we have 5G technology in the United States today, is that we had to have a court rule that Huawei owed other people money so that other people could use each other's patents and still pay each other, but not voluntarily. Crazy. We're in a weird situation, a weird situation in, in intellectual property law, a weird situation in technology. There are a lot of types of technology that are called open source. Chromium, which is the basis for uh, operating systems and every major internet browser software, uses Chromium. Well, that's an open source. Everybody that adds to it gets to use it. And how it's used is more important than what is being used because it's the same language being used across all of these different facilities that could have been a closed source language that only one company used. So this is, this is worth talking about at great length into the future about what is better for the economy, what is better for an individual company to share their secrets or to keep their secrets. And it's some combination of both of those, sharing and keeping. To keep your profitability, you've got to keep some of your secrets. But in order to get infrastructure in place, you have to share your secrets. So one big thing was people remember DVDs and Blu-ray. There was not a consensus on how to encode Blu-ray for quite some time. So there were about eight different types of Blu-ray players, and you could only play one specific type of Blu-ray on each of those types of players which made renting DVDs very difficult until they came up with a standard. That was the open source. Now everybody built to that standard. That's sort of what happened with 5G only involuntarily. Everybody came to a standard on how it would be used, and it was based on somebody else breaking the rules to do it. Um, anyway, that, that was the, what I think is a very, very interesting concept when it comes to intellectual property. Uh, we have a, another question from John about inflation. And this, I think, is right up your alley. Uh, some recent articles say that an increase in inflation is coming short term and then will drop off. If true, what will cause it to drop off? That's a fantastic question. 
Actually, what happens is, and you know, for the inflation, is there's causes of inflation. When the causes go away, the inflation goes away. If the underlying cause of inflation is there's an expectation of wage rises on an ongoing basis, a continual expectation that my pay is going to go up every year just because I'm there, and if it doesn't, I'll go on strike, then we have inflation. We don't have that going on. As a matter of fact, despite the critical labor shortage that employers are reporting across the country, they're not raising wages very much, if any, no more than they have historically. Inflation that we have right now is caused by the surge of money that's available. The recovery surge is causing a very, very high demand. And we've got some critical bottlenecks in the logistics systems that are causing a difficulty in obtaining things, chips particularly in this particular case. And as a result, you've got a high demand and a low supply going on, which forces prices up. Also, we've got a, we've had the price of oil jump from a very low number to a very to a median number, which is a big jump. It's jumped a huge percentage uh, in a, in a very short period of time. All these things raise the prices of everything, and as the prices go up, that equates to inflation. Well, the government the government stimulus, for example, is in the and the un, unemployment insurance is going to go away, and when it goes away. A source of a lot of that money goes away, and people it will slow down the process, and inflation will probably disappear at that point. Uh, another very, very specific example, one piece, is coffee. Coffee. What does that have to do with inflation? Well, coffee prices are up about 33% year over year. It isn't that they dropped a lot during the pandemic. People were still drinking coffee, believe it or not, during the pandemic. No. I know. It's, 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 it's shocking. The reason why... Coffee prices are up, number one, is bad weather. I know, that's weird too, isn't it? Bad weather causes the prices of something that grows in the ground to change? Yes, it does. Bad weather. We've had hurricanes. We've had uh, other natural disasters of floods or drought that affected a lot of the coffee plantations across the world. They're in Brazil and Vietnam and Venezuela. Well, Venezuela is a failed state right now. We're not getting any coffee out of Venezuela. Um, Brazil's had big hurricanes hit, and Vietnam has had a big drought. You combine that with supply chain issues where people have money again and they're buying other things. Well, coffee was still being transferred around during all of this nastiness that occurred. Coffee was still moving. Well, now that the demand is back for everything else, coffee's being pinched. It's harder to move it, and there's less of it to move. So we have a spike in, in the price of coffee, we have this, a spike in the price of oil. We have a spike in the prices for chips that are coming because people have a lot of cash and they want to buy a car or they want to buy something that uses these chips. Well, that causes the demand to go up and anybody that knows supply and demand, supply is down, demand's up. What does that do to prices? Well, there's a lot more money in the system which allows that demand to be there much easier. And as the money goes away from the unemployment benefit, as the money goes away from the stimulus checks, as the money, because we're not doing that forever, hopefully. As that goes away, those extra price spikes go away too. As the supply chain starts getting sorted out, that pinch on prices starts going away. It's going to take a while, a while being maybe a year. But unless we keep pumping money from stimulus into the economy forever, or unless we start making big raises to employees across the country, which we're not seeing happen, then we'll see a drop in inflation. 
That's that, and that's really what it is. When there's a lot of money in the system, and John, you have said this in the past, when too much money is t- chasing too few goods, we have a lot of money and too few goods. That supply of money is going to start dropping because it's and, not it's not at this surplus forever. And the supply of goods will increase. We, the logistics bottlenecks that we're having are largely because of the fact we shifted from one thing to another during the pandemic, and it takes a while to shift back. And it's we'll basically pick up and adapt. For instance, there are chip factories being built and they're being repaired. The ones in Austin are now fully operational again. That we're down during the freeze, but they're doing backlog. They've got backlogs. There's a there's a drought in uh, in Taiwan that's causing a chip shortage. They're not it takes a lot of water to process chips, but that drought won't go on forever. So all the causes of inflation that we're seeing right now are temporary, which means that once they go away, so will inflation. What's more. The temporary causes are being rectified, not just rectified, but in the underlying structures being improved. New plants are being built to make chips. That's a big deal because what that means is we're going to go from a shortage to an eventual glut. And the glut should hit right when we're starting to really boom upward, when cheap chips will allow a lot of innovation for new stuff. And that's a technical term. I'm sorry, I should give the definition of stuff more regularly, but it is really, really complicated. I'm sorry that I can't give you the full definition of stuff. You can see this in a very real way if you'd start looking for a very popular brand of automobile right now. Let's say you said, I've got my stimulus check in, uh, my car's getting old, I think I'll get a new car. And I just got my refund from the government. So got the refund and the stimulus at the same time, I'm going to go get a car. And you go looking for the most popular brands of cars, like an F-150 pickup, you're going to find out sometimes they're just not to be had because they've already sold out and the assembly lines have shut down. And so this leaves the remaining vehicles at a higher price. Matter of fact, used cars are up year over year 28% right now on average. And what we can say is that these used cars are not Tickle Me Elmo. They had a limited production of Tickle Me Elmo as soon as it's possible for the car manufacturers to make more cars, guess what they're going to do? Make more cars. Yes. Lots more cars. Lots more cars. So eventually we'll have too many cars. This is what we do in the economy. We get a big demand. We're not making enough. We go into full drive. Man, a hyperdrive. We need to make more trucks, more trucks, more trucks, more trucks until we'll make too many trucks. And then the price of trucks will go down, which will be good for an expansion. Maybe not so good for Ford. So if you're thinking about getting a car and you have an itch to get a car right now and you can't find the car you're looking for, don't settle for second best. Just be patient. It may take a year, maybe 2022, before you actually see the price of cars come down and the abundance. There'll be, but there will be cars all over the parking lots, all over the car lots before, I'd say, less than a year. Yeah, and, and I agree with that because the, the chip manufacturing facilities, the ones that are being built now, are being built using new technologies to build them faster so that they can make chips faster. And they're using the newest technology to make the chips. The other, the, the, the other chip manufacturing facilities, those, those facilities are more than a decade old. Well, that doesn't seem very old, but it is when you're talking about the technology that needs to be done. This is one of the reasons why Intel, uh, over the last quarter, had these big debates about whether or not they were going to be making their own chips still, is because they have to redesign the way they're making chips. That means they have to completely make new plants. 
and the pandemic pretty well solved that issue for them. They can't trust other suppliers to provide chips on time, so they're building them themselves. By the way, it's also a very good time to sell a house because of the shortage of housing. That's right. And again, that's generated at least partially from the pandemic and the amount of money that's available. The difficulty is that you may have to buy a house after you sell your house. So it may wind up being a wash unless you're moving to a well, place where prices are lower or you're downsizing. Or you, can, or you can move from a house into a rental property if you can find one for a short period of time and then wait and then buy a house when the prices come down again. Right. Not necessarily come down, but stop rising so fast. Because one of the things that we saw in the GDP was that the residential in investment in the quarter went up 10.8%. That's huge. That's, that's a huge. That, the residential investment is not only people fixing up their existing houses, probably in many cases to sell them, but building new houses counts as residential investment in the economy too. So we're seeing a lot of new houses going up and we'll see a lot more, particularly, and again, we'll see this big time, I think, once September passes by. And the unemployment insurance supplement runs out and unemployment starts to run out for a lot of people. I think we'll see a lot of people entering the workforce and going back to work and building houses. And there's another thing that's going to hit around the same time. And this is for the lower priced houses, mostly, although it'll be there elsewhere. Some of the pandemic inspired CARES Act and on to the other stimulus packages disallowing uh, people from foreclosing on delinquent mortgages if they're if the mortgages are held by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac what what does that mean well it means that if you're late on your mortgage if you're delinquent on your mortgage normally after about three months they start telling you hey you need to pay up or we're going to start the process the process is going to court and starting the foreclosure so there are a lot of uh, houses, a large number of houses that are delinquent right now. This is something that we haven't experienced as a drop in the price of houses, them going on the market in the foreclosure market, because they haven't been foreclosed, because there's a stay on this. And right now that goes up through September. At that point, we're, we're also seeing a lot of houses being built right now that should start hitting the market in September. So if you're capable of, of waiting a little bit, prices may improve. Now, that comes with a lot of hardship. Those foreclosures are going on, and there's also a lot of money waiting in the wings to buy up that, I'm going to use air quotes, cheaper houses because of foreclosure. The problem with lots of money waiting in the wings to buy cheaper houses is the more money waiting in the wings to buy the cheaper houses, the less cheap the houses are because they're bidding the prices up. So don't expect a, a, a drop in the near future in the price of houses. But it, I mean, it could happen. There's never a, a statement to say don't expect it. We don't expect a drop in the, in the price of houses in the next year or two. But there's going to be a downward pressure on how fast houses increase in value. That's due to increasing interest rates. Interest rates going up means it's more expensive to buy the same house. And due to more houses being created and foreclosures in the future. I think eventually we'll see a sag in the price of houses. I agree. Because the interest rates are going to go up as the economy recovers, as we get going full steam and the Federal Reserve takes, stops buying bonds to the extent they are. By the way, the Federal Reserve did meet this week, or at least their minutes were published this week, and they announced in a, in a press conference 
that the well, it was a press conference. They met this week and there was a press conference. It was in, in the and the chairman of the Federal Reserve announced that they were going to continue bond buying at the same rate. They basically were going to change nothing, keep interest rates from zero to quarter percent, which is effectively nothing, which is going to continue to hold interest rates down. Mortgage rates are starting to creep up, but they're still at historic lows. But once interest rates start to go up because the economy gets fired up and we get more loan demand and the Federal Reserve stops buying bonds, it's going to be interesting to see because about that time, the builders will have overbuilt. It'll be interesting to see what happens at that point, but I suspect there'll be a slight sag in the cost of housing and then price of houses. I, I tend to agree with that. And then we'll have home builders start going out of business and then you have a, the lack of demand. So this is the cycle, the, the lack of demand, house prices drop some more, but home builders are going out of business until there's not enough houses on the market again. There's always a lag effect and this is a cycle and we see it regularly through history. I want to change the subject to something a little bit odd. Um, credit cards. I, I met with some people this week who really don't have any background at all in finance. They zero, none. And I'm not sure that it's very helpful even to talk about it on the radio program or the podcast because the people that listen to this probably already know this. So really what this is, is asking you, those of you that do know it, to talk about it more. Well, what is it, the it that we're talking about? Number one, that it's possible to transfer your balance in a credit card to another credit card. I know that a lot of people that are listening to this say, well, of course. This is not something that's taught in school. Unless you're getting mail that says transfer to this credit card, and a lot of people aren't because they've signed up through LifeLock and other things like that, so they're not getting cards in the mail saying transfer. So I had a young couple that did not know it was legal to transfer a balance from one card to another. That is scary to me because they both have great credit. They own a house now. They have very low debt, but the low debt that they have is at an extremely high interest rate because they came on some offer or another and they've just held a balance on there. And now they're paying above 20% interest. So me simply telling them shop around for a 0% credit card one day. say, well, how do you do that? Well, there's a lot of places you can do it. One of the places I like to go, it's a, it's a paid place. So be aware that they're going to make a profit going there. They don't pay us anything to say this, but bankrate.com is a good place to look. If you go to mint.com and you use mint they're also, they haven't, they're part of Intuit. They have advertisements for credit cards on there. Obviously they get paid to do it, but finding a good card at 0% interest And then gaming the bank instead of having the bank game you. Because their credit card companies are chortling all day long getting a 20% return on their investment from people who are no risk. And the little amount that they were paying every year meant that this investment was going to continue to pay for decades at 20% a year. And if you ever think about that for a minute, it's really hard not to get your ears hot because this is something we can help some people around us by letting them know this in essence, making the same payments that they were making to their high interest cards on a, on a zero interest card would wind up paying same payments in one year, 15 years worth of the net payment on the old interest rate. 
for not changing anything. So people are aware you can refinance your house. Um, and some people, if you're military, you're at the VA and you're like, I would only ever refinance through the VA because they give me such good interest rates. Well, that leads to people thinking that you can't refinance through another company. It leads to people thinking that you can't refinance a credit card or a student loan, or if you got the loan for your car at the dealership. If you got a loan for your car at the dealership, you should look at the interest rate on that. Check out a local credit union, because credit unions give amazing interest rates on cars. You have to be a member of the credit union. They do make a profit on you, but it's not the... um, slice your arm off at the elbow every week type of profit. It is the profit that's sustainable and they want you to be a member because they want to have a long relationship. So all of that is to say, even with interest rates going up right now, they're still, if you look at any other point in history, considered record low. And if you have the opportunity to look at, if you have good credit and you have credit card debt, go ahead and start looking for the 0% credit card to go to And having said that, also try not to use the credit card so much. If you save money by doing this, start building up a a savings account so that the next time you have an emergency, you don't need your credit card again. And this is the big thing is that people that are trying to pay off their credit card debt that are really motivated to do it and are having so much trouble doing it because they throw every available dollar at paying off the credit card. And as soon as they get a flat tired, they don't have any money in their bank account because they just used it to pay off the credit card, so they get the credit card out again. The way you get ahead of that is to build the savings up first. And I know that's counterintuitive when you want to get out of debt, but if you're building up your savings, it means the next time you have some unforeseen event take place that costs money, you don't have to borrow it at whatever exorbitant rate the the banks are willing to, air quotes, give you the money. I think that's important to understand. And I think that wraps up the subject without beating it to death too hard. Good. You know, when we were back in the 1846, when we were first starting this radio show, maybe it was a little after 1846, but at some point when we were first starting the radio show, we lived in Georgetown. 1997. We started, we lived in Georgetown and we would drive together up the interstate highway to Temple and we'd count trucks to determine what the economy was doing. It was a pretty good, pretty accurate indicator that the economy... It was in 19, uh, well, I don't remember the exact year that we counted trucks, but there was supposedly a recession, an imminent recession focused on. And we kept counting trucks, and there were a lot of trucks, and we indicated there was not a recession. And then in the 2000 through 2002 downturn, there were fewer trucks, and we said, yep, this is a real recession. It really was. But there's a little more sophisticated way of doing it, and that's the, there's looking at railroad traffic and, and truck traffic through indices. But in years gone by, back in the, before the interstate highway system, one of the most relied indicators of what was going on in the United States economy was rail traffic, which is why the transportation index was started, the Dow Jones Transportation Index. Today, goods are transmitted digitally, and by the interstate highway system, I think as many goods are transmitted digitally as they are by the interstate highway system. You say, how are goods transmitted digitally? Well, if you sit down and stream a movie, you just transmitted goods. You paid for something that you bought and it was transmitted to you digitally. And if you're listening to this radio program on the internet, it was transmitted to you digitally. You're not paying for it, but you're listening to the advertisement that pays for it. Anyway... The cash freight index of truck shipments was up 3.4% from last month and now higher than it was in mid-2019. That would indicate that the economy is 
the there's a great deal of strength in the economy, but just as importantly, a more classic U.S. railroads for the first 16 weeks of 2021, the, the number of shipments is up 9.4% from last year. And last year, if you recall, as the as the pandemic hit, there was no shortage of things being ordered. We were still ordering things vigorously, and the railroads were still trying to deliver them. And the we last year at this point we need a lot of coal and a lot of gas and oil transported across the country to fuel the power stations that were trying to stay afloat in the middle of a winter storm. So we're seeing some dramatic improvement. But the, the big the number, the big number, obviously enough, or not obviously, but strangely enough, is the transportation stocks. Transportation index used to be leading index in the Dow Jones Industrial Averages. Yeah, and, and down, just just to throw that out, it was the first index that the Dow Jones company made. When when you talked about the index, it, they took very large companies. This was in the late 1800s, and the largest companies in the country at the time were all railroad companies. So the Dow Jones Transportation Index was the original measurement of what the marketplace was doing. The Dow Jones Industrial Average and Dow Jones in, in Transportation Average has risen for 13 consecutive weeks. It's the longest streak of weekly gains since it rose for 15 consecutive weeks in 1899. So if that is a true, if that is still a true indicator of the health of the stock market, the stock market is still pretty healthy. It's a small thing, but it's one of those ancient and still probably reliable sources of information. Yeah, I, I think that looking at infrastructure and the increase in transportation if we get this infrastructure bill and it looks consistently looks like we're going to get it if there's no republican votes it's still going to happen if this had been under the trump administration it would have passed with no democrat votes so when i look at and there's some things in there that they're, that they're both quibbling about but the reality is the things that the republicans and the democrats don't agree on in the infrastructure bill is less than 1% of the infrastructure bill. That's what's slowing everything down right now. So it looks like we're going to get it. The Republicans are coming together with a, a, a different proposal. But what's interesting here is when you look at the size of the proposal, which is the big objection that the Republicans have, it's the same size as what the Trump administration proposed. And if you think back, that's what the Republicans were re- we're contesting about it then. It's the reason why we didn't get an infrastructure bill under the Trump administration is because of Republican pushback, not Democrat pushback. But the Democrats weren't helping either. Uh, so keeping that in mind, knowing that we have consistently over the last more than 20 years, every president has agreed on this, that we need to upgrade our infrastructure. And Congress, if you ask them, there aren't members of Congress that say, no, we shouldn't do that, except for just very few that say, basically, we shouldn't do anything at the governmental level. And that's a valid point. It's just a small percentage of them. So when we're looking at this infrastructure bill, it looks like we're going to get it. And if we get it, don't expect it to act like stimulus checks and cause the economy to take off. This is a long-term investment and is one of the hardest things to get passed by any president if they don't do it at the beginning of their first term, even if they're in there for two terms, they don't recognize the benefit for it. Obama did uh, an infrastructure bill, and it really, the effects of the infrastructure bill took place at the very end of his administration and into the Trump administration. Uh, and all that's saying is it takes a long time 
to steer the Titanic. The infrastructure bill is designed, or any infrastructure bill, should be designed to increase the flow of economic activity, however that's defined. But you don't expect that economic increase to occur until all of the channels are there for it to flow through. Those channels take a long time to build. So just keep that in mind, whether it's Republican or Democrat, anytime you hear infrastructure, you're going to hear promises of this is going to cause the inf- the economy to grow at this percent in the next quarter. No, it won't. <laughs> it will not. It doesn't matter if it's a Democrat or a Republican that say it. It's wrong, but it's how they sell the stuff. Uh, the infrastructure, infrastructure is a long-term investment. By the way, going into debt to pay for good infrastructure, which is what the infrastructure bill contains, is a good idea. You're investing, in other, you're in essence investing at uh, what? If you use a 10-year treasury note, you're investing at 1.6% loan. You've got a 1.6% loan to build highways and bridges and internet. That and hopefully will increase tax revenue by a lot more than that tens of percents yeah it's if you if we use it like a individual company an individual company has ah well you know it's a small company they've got one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in the bank wow that's pretty good we've never had this kind of savings before this is enough to take care of payroll for like six months we got it we're doing great we need to increase the size of our facility oh we can't do it because we don't have enough money good reason to get debt for that that's where the mortgage comes in and this is what there's they, another no there's go another ahead. good reason for debt out there and that's in the other bill the family i don't remember what it's called the family cares bill or whatever it is the one it's that's the education one the education and, and and child care bill i think it's a very important thing if you if we provide uh, community college available for everyone who's academically qualified to get in in the united states just like we do high school today we will dramatically increase the education level of our workforce. We can increase the educational level of our workforce. We increase our productivity. We increase the profitability. We increase the taxes going down the road. Same thing's true with childcare, by the way. F- federal support for daycare centers is a tremendous advantage because a lot of people can't af- aren't working in, in the society right now because they can't afford to have somebody take care of their kids. If we can address the fact that we can bring more people into the workforce and we can have a better educated workforce. Now, these are long-term investments. They won't even show up during the Biden administration. It will be 18 years, years if we're talking about preschool type stuff. Yeah. More than 18 years. But the important thing is if we make these long-term investments, then in the long term, we will be a lot better off just as we will do in transportation and, and infrastructure. These are good reasons to borrow money because it's a really you know if you're in business and we've been in business for a long time you borrow money to invest in things that produce more than you're paying for it in interest and this this I is it works really well right here's another kind of good touch point uh denmark is it's a socialist country but it's a successful socialist country and that almost seems like an oxymoron because when you think of socialist countries they're pretty much failed states how is it effectively a socialist country and still remaining profitable across many of its corporate levels? Well, the answer is that they're looking at parts of their economy and saying, what prevents people from going to work in a capitalist enterprise? How do we make that barrier go away? We're going to pay for schooling. We're going to pay for the unemployment side of things, but we're going to require 
that they search for employment during that time period. So they have a weird amalgam that there's nobody left that's really fully socialist that hasn't failed. So they're the most socialist nation really still out there and successful. Some degree of socialism is a must for any country. The military is a socialist enterprise. It's the protection of everybody by removing wealth from some people to pay for it. We kind of all recognize we need to defend ourselves. The police are a socialist enterprise. We are collectively, as a group, paying for the police. Some of us are paying more for the police than others. That's redistribution of wealth. So any governmental organization, any governmental enterprise is socialist by nature. And if we're subsidizing private enterprises, we have to approach that carefully. This is what happened with colleges and the the rate of increase of college cost is crazy. It's what's happened at hospitals. We have to learn how to do this right. But if we look at the boom in the economy that we got when public school education was available to everybody, not just from the kids growing up knowing more, that was big, but it took a long time, but allowing both parents to work, the kind of exponential growth that we had in the economy because both parents were freed up to go to work was phenomenal. Well, that is not the case at the low level of, of age for your kids. There are not, I mean, unless you're making very, very small amounts of money in Texas, you don't qualify for preschool government funding. Okay, well, that means that you can't go to work. And that's what a lot of people do, is they just don't go to work. Um, this, this is a real issue. And the, the higher the concentration of people, the higher the price is for preschool education. In, in Boston right now, average cost per year for a child under five years old to go to daycare is $25,000. The cost to go to the University of Texas, if you're an in-state tuition, with room board and everything else thrown into it, is $28,000. So college is now, for right now, still slightly more expensive than sending your kid to preschool in Boston. But that's true in almost every major metropolitan area. The prices of, of childcare are unreasonable if you're below a certain income which means you don't work, which means you remain in that lower income. If there's some degree of credit that goes to people to pay for this sort of thing, even at a lower level, it will increase the economic output of the parents tremendously. That sounds very cold. It'll get the kids out of the house and get the parents back to work. But it works. On the macro level, it is phenomenally important to get the right kind of governmental spending, not the wrong kind of governmental spending. I would disagree with you that North, Denmark is a Nordic, is a is a uh, socialist country. It's it's a market economy. As a matter of fact, in some ways, they're less socialist than we are. They, I, I agree uh, with what you're saying. They are universally called a socialist country because they're the only one that's kind of leaning. They they are actually led by the socialist party. Well, but the point is, for example, their social security system, our social security system is based on taking money from people and giving it to other people, which is socialist. Mm -hmm. Their social security retirement system, which is mandatory for everybody, uh, and you can invest in it, is based on a market. They actually invest in the market. And they match your 
match your investment and you can put your own money into it. Yeah, it's it's like the opposite of socialism when and, it comes to that. And some of the one of the most successful free enterprise country companies in the world, Lego, is based there. They're basically a market-based economy, but they've got a lot of socialism in their public area where we don't have. So, for instance, healthcare is free. It isn't free. They just have high taxes to pay for it. Um, and there's a lot of things that they take care of that we don't take care of in a way that the government doesn't take care of things here. But I, I would say it was a market-based economy still. The, the government doesn't own the companies. I, I agree with that. Um, and that's why I prefaced it all by saying considered socialist rather than because uh, when I look at, at Denmark, there are definitely socialist tendencies on the public side, but they're extremely market based and capitalistic on the for profit side. Uh, we will be back uh, on the other side of these commercials with more of the personal wealth coach. If you would like to talk to us, uh, we have emails available at Jeff at TPWC.com or Jake at tpwc.com. That's Tango, Papa, Whiskey, Charlie. And we'll be back after these very important messages. And we're back with more of The Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Oh, okay. You're you're still on there. Our our video feed died. Anyway, do you have some things you want to use to wrap up this hour we've talked about all kinds of things is there something you can say to some to the people out there that they can take and use in their life today well the economy is still recovering so this is still on the way up and it's still got a lot of momentum even though a lot of money's been taken out of the market there's no indications the underlying indications that precede a bear market or a recession just aren't there and we've been looking really, really hard the leading economic indicators are continuing to remain up the yield curve continues to remain steep. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of worry in the, in the news media about the market's too high. But I think the worry is way premature. I think uh, I would add to that saying as long as that worry is making headlines, we're still in good shape. As soon as the media all agrees that this is going to go on forever, that's when we start saying, well, watch out. The important thing is to maintain a steady course. In other words, maintain uh, a course that allows you to have a diversified portfolio, particularly if you're looking at retirement. It's well balanced and recognize that an unexpected event, the thing that the things that we're worried about almost never are the things that hit us. Whatever whatever causes the market to go down and is going to will become out of the blue. It'll be something we don't expect, we're not ready for, and it doesn't make the headlines in advance. So the important thing is to look at your portfolio and say, if the market crashed 50% today, what would I do? If you have a plan for that, if you have a plan to continue your income in retirement, you have a plan to continue to function in the market, then you're probably in pretty good shape. If you don't have a plan for that, then you probably need to get a plan for that. And that means not being fully invested and not being over, and certainly not invested in things that have really, really, really high flyers right now. Yeah, I think you have nailed it. This is really preaching to the choir now because most of you are already doing this, but make sure that your cash reserves are in good shape. Make sure you have enough money in the bank so that if you're not paid for a while, you've got it good uh, so that you don't have to go into credit card debt next emergency that comes up. Not if, but when the next emergency comes up. And it could be a little one or a big one. Who knows? Having your reserves topped up, being the ant rather than the grasshopper, we were talking about doing that 
in 2019 and hopefully enough people listened that they had their cash in good shape and they didn't bail out of the market when it when it dropped when times are good and they are definitely good in the market you plan for when they're bad and when times are bad in the market you plan for when they're good and right now times are good and we don't see any signs that they'll be bad anytime soon but that doesn't mean we shouldn't plan for it so build your strategy today if you Look at your portfolio and say, what would, what would I do if this portfolio dropped 50%? If your answer is I would sell it, then you should probably be selling now because you don't want to sell when it's down 50%. I, 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 I really seriously doubt you want to. There's a major conundrum there and that people want a high return, but they don't want to, they don't want to suffer through major market downturns. But the price to pay for a high return in your portfolio, and that's anything above what you get in the bank, is the fact that you have variance. And the variance goes up with the return that you want. So just remember that. Yeah. And we're about out of time for this week. Thank you all for listening. We love doing this and we're really, really thankful for those of you that take two hours out of your week to sit and listen to us. And we are definitely sorry for the brain damage that's occurred because of it. Uh, we appreciate you guys more than we can say. 